This episode of Madison Story Slam, just like all of them, is sponsored by Ale Asylum. This episode is also sponsored by Resolution Therapeutic Massage. To learn more about these companies and why they like to be involved with Madison Story Slam, visit their websites at aleasylum.com and resolutionmassage.com. Hello and welcome to the Madison Story Slam podcast. It is I, your host, Adam Rosted. Thank you so much for joining us. Would you do me a favor right now? Just go to the Apple Podcast app or maybe on iTunes and search for Madison Story Slam. Hit the subscribe button, but also leave us a rating and a review. When you rate a podcast, it helps other people find those podcasts. And when you leave a review, it helps me know what I'm doing right and what I'm doing wrong. You can tell us what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, maybe what you'd like to see different about this show. So, here we are again with another wonderful Story Slam episode with the rest of our stories from our March 17th event, Big. It was awesome at the Wilmar Center that night. We had so many great stories from great people. One of my favorite stories we have ever had on Madison Story Slam is on this episode. It's from Toby Simmons, so be sure to stick it out through that one. And, uh, you know, just listen to all of them because they're all great and people worked really hard on these and you should hear them. Hey, we want you to know that we have merch. We have t-shirts now, we have hoodies, we have CDs and buttons. Uh, If you would like to get your hands on any of those, the best way to do it is to come to one of our live events the third Saturday of every month here in Madison at the Wilmar Center. But if you can't make it to one of those and you still want to support the show, there are two ways that you can do that. One, if you go to madisonstoryslam.podbean.com, in the upper right-hand corner, you will see a button that says Become a Patron, where you can pledge monthly to what we're doing and help us do our show. But also, if you want some merch, the other way you can support what we're doing is just reach us on Facebook. If you go to facebook.com slash madisonstoryslam, send us a message and we're going to try and get you some of that merch. We'll figure out how we can do it um yeah so all right what else do we have let's see on april 21st that is saturday april 21st which is just this coming saturday in madison at the wilmar center it's our next story slam event and the theme that night is child's play so come here and tell some great stories about when you were a child and the things you did and all that good stuff and then on may 12th our next event is happening. It's our new event called Read It and Weep, where we want you to come and share, read your old things that you've written, old short stories, journal entries, letters, plays, songs. We'll probably have some instruments there for sure. A guitar. We'll have a guitar there for you to share a song you wrote. We cannot wait for this to happen. That's at Mr. Roberts on May 12th in on Atwood, Mr. Roberts. Anyway, our first storyteller is super awesome. He's a tiny guy, but we had him at Big. It is Frandu Smith. Good. Normally, I have to adjust this. Now all I have to be aware of is how I'm pronouncing your freaking language. 
I used to work on the dorms of a college, changing the, the, the covers. And I could not say shit. And everybody will ask me, so what is it that we do? What do we change? What do we change? I said, the shits, and everybody will crack up. <laughs> but they never tell you how to pronounce it. They're just like, yeah, listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> Had occasion to meet this young woman. And she told me that her husband was like really hurting her physically, at least, and invited me to her apartment to talk, help her with things. She had dishes and her apartment was a mess. And while she talked and listened, while I watched dishes, I told her things. And so they, we sat down, we talked for an hour, you know, it's like, yeah, this is great, blah, blah. And then she looked out the window and her husband was coming home. So she told me, you got to hide. I said, I am not hiding. He'll find me and he'll kill me. So she says, well, you, you got to do something like what he does. I said, I'll jump out the window. <laughs> it's the second story floor, so what the heck? It's not that high. <laughs> so I did. with my shirt in my hand and my shoes on the other hand. But I was dressed. Just needed a shirt and my shoes because she didn't want people to walk around on her wooden floors. Well, somehow I made it downstairs to the dumpster. That's where I ended up. And I came out and I was really pretty bummed out because it's, it's just... It's, it's, it's just horrible to me that a person who loves somebody and marries them wants to beat them up. I don't get it. They're like, I love you, but I want to beat you. It's like, what the heck? <laughs> so I'm bummed out, you know, because, you know, life, people, stupid people. And so I go over to, to a cafeteria to a, a burger joint and I get a cup of coffee and thinking about it and writing and I'm thinking, uh, you know, just feeling. And this old lady comes over to me and she says to me, hey, young man, here, get yourself a good meal and gives me $10. And so I, I was kind of shocked, you know, and I looked at the $10 and I go, oh, okay. And when I turned around to get her phone number, she was gone. Because I wanted to know her. $10, that's good. And anyway, I went home and then the next day I got up and I'm still with this heavy thought and this thing. But the $10 are there in my pocket, you know? And so I go and I go, ah, ah. 
You know, because sometimes you begin to feel real bad about yourself. You begin to doubt about who you are or the things that you do or how to present yourself or how to dress or about your hot date, all kinds of silly things. You know, you get up, you see yourself in the morning and you go, oh, I'm crooked. You know, it's like, ah, if I look at myself in the mirror real carefully, I can tell that my nose goes that way or somewhere. It's just not straight. So I turn my head so that it looks straight, you know? It's, it's like you do all, ki all kinds of tricks, right? We put color on our hair, I cut my hair, you know, I don't know, it's just things that we do. Or else we go drink. Or we do drugs, you know? We're just like, yeah, yeah, you become, you become obnoxious and start telling stupid jokes, blah, blah. So I figure I'm gonna go and have, have a few drinks and like, yeah, yeah, because, because I don't know, I guess misery loves misery, and you just like, there's something in you that says, ah, something's ugly about human beings, you're one of those, why don't you just do, hurt yourself? <laughs> and you go, oh, give me shots. <laughs> so I went and I figured I'm gonna have a, a, a hot toddy or something, and I went, and I got the hot toddy, and I'm drinking the hot toddy, and I'm getting another one, and I'm feeling better, you know, you start feeling really happy and stuff, and 12 people come in having a birthday party for a 90-year-old lady, and this young woman that's with them looks at me and thinks that I am really uh, at some, because it's, you know, St. Patrick's Day and all that. She grabs me by my hairy chin chin and pulls me over to her and just calls me over and she goes, oh, you're a leprechaun, you're a lucky leprechaun. So I said, for you, I'll be your leprechaun. And they thought that was really hilarious, and then they bought me, they bought me more drinks, and I'm like, yeah, things are happening real well, and uh, her, her boyfriend is, is, it gets to know me and tells me, okay, anything you need, friend, do anything, anything. I said, wow, take me to the west side so that I can pick up my bicycle. And he goes, okay. He takes me to the west side, I pick up my bicycle. And so I'm picking my bicycle, and I'm coming back, and I'm going, Wow, life is really pretty good, pretty good. Well, I have, I have drinks in me, I have my bicycle, I'm going home, all I need is a head of a joint, like, like some pot. Because you know, you, you, you have this cocktail things that you do, because you know, that makes you feel better or something. It's just like all kinds of weird stuff that we do. And so, I, don't, I, I knew I had it in my pocket, and I'm like, no, I don't have it. I go, ah, see, life cannot be perfect. <laughs> it's like, ah, this little thing is missing. It's like, oh, no, everything was just like getting there, and now I don't have this, like, ah. It's okay, I ended up at Wisco, and boy, they gave me more pot than I needed. It says, whoa, the head, like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so, It's just that we think that big is like the car almost hits me, or that I won the lottery, or that, or that, or, or that my, 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 my grandmother gave me all her inheritance, or, or, or some big, huge things. You lost the train that was going to give you that promotion to your job, and then they fire you, you know, like, ah. Oh. Your dog died, or it's like some, some tragedy or some immense thing, but like big things, big things, big things is that old lady giving me those freaking $10 and making me feel a little better about the disgrace that we live with. 
Big, big thing is that the, the, the woman getting my chin, chin, chin and pulling me over and telling me, oh, you're my husband, but you're my lucky leprechaun, and she doesn't even know me. Wait till you know me a little bit and you see what kind of bad luck I can bring you. <laughs> big thing is the man offering me to go, offering to give me a ride to go get my bicycle. He doesn't know me. He just like, man, brings me to his car. Here, let's go. And we're cracking jokes and we're like all buddy-buddy. And I don't know him. I don't know him. A woman feels bad because she sees me like she thinks that I have no money. Or that, or that I'm very hungry and all I can afford is the cup of coffee. And she comes and she gives me $10. $10. And I'm like, wow, wow. If I get up in the morning and I see my crooked nose, it doesn't really matter at all. You know, it's like everything. It's like everything. It's really those really simple things that make the whole freaking big thing. That's what makes the huge thing. And you have two ladies, two young girls that are probably not even menstruating yet. And she goes, well, get rid of the freaking guns. And they like, go oh, freaking go and demonstrate and bring a whole movement of, of young kids. Because holy freaking frat, what do we have? What are we leaving? What, what are we leaving behind? These kids want to have a beautiful world like everybody else. And so holy freaking frack, all those little acts actually freaking happen. And so I have to question myself, why do I want to make these cocktails? What is it in me that wants to like punch me? Why am I betraying myself? What is Love. Thank you very much. My name is Frendu. Thank you, Frendu. <laughs> Thank you, Frendu. I love Frendu. He's. Isn't he like a ball of fire? It's wonderful. You guys still having a good time? Cool. Our next storyteller has never been to Madison's Story Slam before, which means he's never told a story before. And while he may not look like it, from his name, you think he would be a dear friend of Adam Sandler. Please put your hands together for Rob Schneider. Thank you. You can do it. Yeah. Thanks. Um, I'm going to start my story pointing at my hand, and it has nothing to do with living anywhere in Wisconsin or Michigan. I've, I've got a tiny little black spot here. Any of you stab yourselves anywhere in your body with a pencil? Maybe, maybe back in third grade? You, you still got the mark? Yeah? Good. I found out talking to a doctor friend of mine the other day that there's a word for that. Does anyone know what that is? It's called a traumatic tattoo. There's a medical term for it. And the story I'm going to tell you tonight, which is what brought up the discussion with the doctor recently, is a time back in 1974 when I had two traumatic tattoos installed in one event. As any good story begins, it's usually with an older brother and a bad idea. <laughs> My brother says to me, hey, you want to play Evil Knievel? <laughs> and I mean, we lived in Ely, Nevada, which is in the middle of nowhere in central eastern Nevada, and we had just moved there from Butte, Montana. And on the drive down from Butte, we passed the Snake River Canyon. 1974, September, this is when Evil Knievel is going to jump and fail miserably into the canyon. We saw the launch pad. 
And we lived in Butte, Montana, which was Evil Knievel's hometown. And for Christmas that year, I got the little rev up motorcycle with Evil Knievel's action figure. And you let it go and hit him into the wall and break his bones. And it was awesome. <laughs> and my dad used to take us out around town. He was an assistant district attorney there. And he would set us up playing pool and then go drinking. He was really good with um, ad hoc babysitting. He'd go drinking and then come back to us and say, I was drinking with Evil Knievel. So when my brother says, do you want to play Evil Knievel? I said, yeah, I want to play Evil Knievel. Set me up. What do I got to do? And he says, OK, what we're going to do is you get up on the handlebars of the three-speed bike, and I will pedal it and go off the curb with you, and that'll be our jump. I'm like, yeah. Wait, wait, hold, hold it, hold it. Do you remember Evil Knievel at all? Have any of you seen? Was there ever anyone on a handlebar? <laughs> no. Was there anyone eight years old wearing nothing but short, cut-off jean shorts? <laughs> no. No socks, no shoes, no anything. But I get on, and my brother pedals across the street, and we go up a big ramp, and I hold on. It's good, it's good, it's good. Let's go. And he drives down to the end of the sidewalk. He's picking up speed, and I'm like, we're good, we're good, we're good. And he goes off the jump, which was realistically only about an inch. <laughs> off of the curb into the pavement. But it was just enough that as we hit that bump, my center of gravity went over. And I had that magic, that alchemy that happens when you combine time with terror and everything turns into absolute crystal clear slow motion snapshot pictures. And I'm going down, and I'm going down. And at some point, my fingers curl off the handlebar, and I rock it like Evil Knievel straight into the pavement and I'm scraping on my face, and I'm seeing stars under the eyes. I don't know how long I was in contact with the pavement, but it, was, it felt like a long time. Now, if I'd planned it in advance, I probably could have marketed the thing. It's like, come one and all and see the nearly naked lad dismount from a bicycle and stick the landing, a moving bicycle, and stick the landing, landing on nothing but his face. <laughs> At about that time, after the stars stop flying through my eyelids and I start screaming, my mom and aunt come over and pick me up and wrap me in towels and I'm bleeding all over everything. And they whip me into the car to go to the hospital. And I hear my mom yelling at my aunt, God damn it, skip second deer, go to third. She was driving a three on the tree. She didn't know how to, and my mom was just screaming, do it. She's yelling at me, shut up, it can't hurt that bad. And I'm like, I think it does. I really do. She's got my, hand, my face covered up with compresses, and we get out to the hospital about two miles away. It's a little 46-bed hospital where my mom worked. And Ely is 250 miles from anything. There's, we had Pizza Hut was the only national brand I was exposed to in 18 years of growing up. So we get the best doctors there. So we sit in the uh, waiting room at the emergency room, and eventually, Doc Jones come in. He's whistling and snapping his fingers, and he's, he's from Boston, and he's the wise guy, and he's the county commissioner. He's like, what looks like you fucked up your face, Mr. Schneider? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm eight years old, and we go back. <laughs> the reason why this is a big story is because I had a lot of firsts happen to me that night. The first time I had that sort of stop motion thing happen, the first time that I had stitches, the first time I broke a nose, the first time I had a concussion, the first time I had adults, authorities swearing in front of me. <laughs> and he takes me onto the 
gurney and we go in to have him take care of my face. Gives me Novocaine, a couple shots. Yeah, cut him out, looks like a hamburger. And he starts, plink, plink. I'm like, what is that? Yeah, I'm picking the rocks out. Picking rocks out of my face. The, the, the crash took out this side of my face and down under through the nose, and I still have scars, and I still have a little sneer that makes me look like I'm being an asshole, but it's just a scar. <laughs> so, he's picking rocks out, and he goes, oh, Jesus, this one's a doozy. You better keep this one. He drops it in my belly button. <laughs> Take it home as a souvenir, Mr. Schneider. Small town, everybody knows everybody. So, I'm lying there. I got a surgical drape over my face, and I can see the light overhead, and all I can see is Doc's whistling face come in as he looks down over me, picks a rock, and goes back out. There's virtually, I can see virtually nothing. But eventually, he cleans everything out and decides it's time to start putting the stitches in. And he must have been bored, because he says, you want to hear a joke? You want to hear a joke? I, I've got nowhere to be, so go ahead. And it's at this point I really struggle with how to tell the story, because... I've written this up over the years many times, and it is a big story. Uh, but I'm going I'm to skip the joke, not tell the joke. Because besides being too long and tedious and too many verses before you get to the punchline, it's extraordinarily racist. And when he said the N-word at the end of the joke, and I'm lying there in the hands of a county commissioner with 35 stitches being put into my face as he stitches the filth in from the streets of Ely, he also planted the pink elephant in the room for me that until a few years ago, I didn't realize was in there. And you start realizing, I wake up every morning and look at myself in the mirror, and I've got this traumatic tattoo that I look at. It's still there, it's fading. Thank God it goes away and nobody notices it. But I've also got this other one that has been a filter in front of every racial interaction my entire life since eight years old, and it's the kind of thing you don't notice, that this horrible joke he says pops up before every single time you meet somebody of a different color. And that's the second traumatic tattoo that was installed. And I could work on getting rid of them, but it is important to know they, they stay around for a long time. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. I, uh, you know, you talk about pencil uh, stabbings. I was in, uh, I went to a private Christian school here in town that always had like n nobody that went there. My graduating class was 40 people and we were the biggest graduating class that to this day has ever graduated from the school. So when I was in third grade, we had one third, so usually, you know, you, you, have, you would have like two second grade classes, two third grade classes. Uh, we had two third grade classes and, no, I'm sorry. We had one third, grade, one third grade class, one fourth grade class, and one mixed third and fourth grade class. That's how small we are. I don't know how they pulled this off and how they taught the things that needed to be taught. But when I was in this class, I was in, in class with a, a fourth grader as a third grader uh, with a guy named Casey. And Casey was a dick. <laughs> and uh, our new sponsor uh, at Story Slam is therapeutic, is, I'm sorry, Resolution Therapeutic Massage. 
And it's owned by my oldest friend in the world. Her name is Andrea. And, and Casey was bothering Andrea. I've known Andrea since she was born. And, and he was bothering Andrea. And I said, Casey, why don't you just stop and like go bother somebody else? And he said, like you? And then he picked up a pencil and jammed it into my left bicep. <laughs> and I will never forget just being like, like, I, I, time froze, right? <laughs> like, time froze, and I was just like, ah, why did you do that? And it hurt so bad. And I don't think he got in trouble. Like, in today's world, if, if a fourth grader stabbed a third grader, like, it would be, like, on the evening news, I feel like. But, like, back then, it was just like, meh. To be fair, um... The teacher I had back then, uh, in third grade, my cousin died. My cousin Katie died of cancer. She was 11 years old. And I went to school the day of her funeral. And uh, I had to come in at recess to take a spelling test that I was going to miss when I went to her funeral that afternoon. I will never forget my teacher, because it was her, um, her like prep period. Like while we were at recess, she's going to prep and like do things to prepare for the day. And I will never forget her looking at me and being frustrated that she has to give me the spelling test early. And she said, you know, Adam, you really need to get your priorities straight. Meaning, school is more important than your dead cousin's funeral. I will never forget that. So maybe that's why like the whole stabbing thing was glossed over. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, it's not, I don't have the mark anymore, but I have the mark. For the podcast listeners, I'm touching my heart. <laughs> Our next storyteller, the last time she told a story, I remember thinking, wow, she is really good at telling stories. So please put your hands together for Rebecca Mandich. So do you guys remember that time, like that period of time in the late 2000s when our culture was making this really awkward transition between like flare jeans and skinny jeans. You remember that? So like I, I was like really resisting the skinny jean trend. I'm like, I'm just hoping this is just gonna go back from whence it came. You know, sort of like a gaucho pants situation. It's like, hey, we did it. I owned a pair of gaucho pants. Like, let's just not talk about it again. But like the skinny jeans, they were here to stay. And eventually like, all of the cool kids were wearing the skinny jeans and like my like fashion icon and lady crush, Kate Middleton, like she was wearing the skinny jeans and I'm like, guys, I think I gotta wear the skinny jeans. So I went and I like tried on my first pair of skinny jeans. And if you're like, if you've never tried them on, it, it is like the weirdest thing because you like squeeze into them and you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, yeah, like, I don't know how I feel about these. Like they're real tight. But I was like, you know, I'm just gonna commit to this. Like I am gonna do this. I'm gonna wear these. It's gonna be great. So I bought my first pair of skinny jeans and like I was looking forward to this event that I was going to and like, at this point in life, I never had a boyfriend, and like I knew that this guy that I liked was gonna be at this event, and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna wear my skinny jeans, I'm gonna wear my outfit, like I'm gonna do my hair, I'm gonna go to this event. So I like, 
I got all dressed up. I'm wearing my jeans, and I'm like headed out the door to go to this event, ready to take on the world. And my dad stops me, and he looks at me, like kind of with this look of disbelief, and he's like, why are you wearing that? Your legs look like sausages. <laughs> so, like that kind of insecurity that comes from these sorts of moments that a girl will have at many different points in her life, like that was kind of buried underneath the surface and it came up again and resurfaced when I got my woman body. So like for every girl, getting their woman body is a really different experience. And like for some girls, it's just like, yeah, the ugly duckling becomes a swan or like, you know, the butterfly emerges from their cocoon. For me, it was like I gained 20 pounds in six months and all of a sudden got boobs. Like, it, was, it was like a really exciting time and it was a confusing time. Like it was really exciting to have boobs because like I didn't know if that was ever going to happen and then it happened. Like that was great, but then it was confusing because you're like, all right, and I also gained 20 pounds. So these two things go hand in hand. And like while this was happening to my body, I was living in Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa. And it was just like, it was just kind of a confusing time. I didn't really love my body. I didn't know what was going on with it. And I just, I just felt confused. And like while I felt uncertain about my body, my Kenyan friends felt really excited about what was happening to me. And uh, they would <laughs> make a lot of comments to me, such as like, you know, Rebecca, like, I can see you're really liking the food these days. Like, you look really fat. <laughs> or, like, another person said to me, like, Rebecca, you are looking so fat in those jeans. Like, yeah. So I was taking this as, like, an insult. Like, okay, thanks. Um, but then I came to learn that in Kenya, like, Curvy is really sexy. So they were giving me a compliment. Um, and that, that was still kind of weird to process. Um, I had one other friend in Kenya, and she was an American girl. And she was, like, pretty voluptuous and just had the most, like, amazing personality. And I loved hanging out with her. And, um, yeah, we'd hang out together sometimes. And I remember, like, this is just a confusing, weird, like, you know, girl becoming a woman sort of time in life. And I was telling her, like, we'd go on walks together and I'd tell her, like, yeah, I don't know what's going on with my body. It's kind of weird. Like, I'm gaining weight and I'm trying to exercise, but, like, this is just happening. And she was like, girl, I've got, like, 50 pounds on you. And, like, I, like, can't get a date in the U.S. And, like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get married. And so we'd have some real conversations as we'd, like, walk around the dusty roads in Nairobi and... I remember one day we were walking down the road and a man stopped us. Well, like I shouldn't really say that he stopped us because as soon as like he or any other man in Kenya saw my friend, like I just stopped existing. It was just like move aside skinny bitch, like let us worship the queen. So <laughs> these guys, they would come up to her and they were just like Oh, Dada, Dada, Sana, sister, you are so beautiful. And they, they just go on and on, like, oh, you are so gorgeous. Dada, give me your, give me your, give me your number. Give me your Facebook. Like, give me your email. I want to marry you. I want you to be the mother of my kids. Like, 
it was just insane how much they would worship her. And like that time for me in Kenya of just like seeing um, this alternate reality to one that I had grown up in was really good for me because it showed me that like beauty standards are so absolutely subjective. Like I could lose 20 pounds here in the US and people would be like, wow, Rebecca, you look so great. You should be a model. You could seriously be a model. And then I can gain 20 pounds in Kenya and they're looking at me like, girl, let's see how big this ass can get. <laughs> so it's all subjective. And what I realized like being a woman or just like just being a person is that people are gonna have a lot of comments about your body. They're gonna think it's good, they're gonna think it's bad, they're gonna think it's like too big, too little, whatever. But at the end of the day, like your body is yours and my body is mine and it's here for me to use and it's here for me to decide whether it's good or not. So I kind of just like got tired of these labels that we put on our bodies, like fat, skinny, whatever. You know, they just seem like too simplistic and I decided like, I'm gonna own my body and I'm gonna come up with a new label to like, you know, describe myself outside of that. And I came up with a label and you know, you guys are free to reuse it if you really like it, if it resonates, like, but sexy Wisconsin farm girl. <laughs> so this was a part of me like learning to embrace my woman body it was like yeah you know I'm a sexy Wisconsin farm girl and like this is what it is and I have to love my body before anyone else is gonna love it so um, I learned how to do that and then as I got a little bit older like I started to meet some boys and um, one guy that I dated when I was living in Tanzania a few years later his name was Ngira and I was working at a university there and this guy like saw me from afar and just like felt the need to really chase after me. So he was coming to my office and making excuses to talk to me. He was intentionally bumping into me during like tea breaks and eventually he asked me out. And um, so I was getting to know this guy and like when you're being wooed, by a guy in East Africa, like they're very verbal and they're like very complimentary because they've been socialized that like, yeah, we compliment women, we tell them everything we like about them, we tell them we want them to be the mother of our children after meeting her for 30 seconds. Like it's just, it's just, what, it's just what happens. So um, yeah, I was getting to know this guy and one thing I learned pretty quickly was that like, this guy, weirdly, like, he loved my legs, which was, like, just weird. Like, okay, that's weird. Why would you, like, you love my legs? Like, I don't really love my legs that much. Like, that's kind of an insecurity point for me. You know how we all have that, like, part of our body that maybe we wish we could change? Like, for me, it was that. And then hearing somebody say that they, like, express so much about that, that they love that, um, was a little bit confusing for me and I didn't think that it was sincere, but it kept coming up over and over again. And then one day, I remember this guy was at my house and he was walking around and then he saw like my sewing machine there and on my sewing machine I had this picture. And it was this picture of like Kate Middleton, my lady crush, my fashion icon, whatever. Uh, she was wearing this dress and I had printed it out because I wanted to sew this dress like what she was wearing. And he picks up the picture and he like looks at it. 
And he stares at it for a minute, and it's clear to me that he has no idea who this person is, or like, what does Kate Middleton represent to our culture? Um, and he stares at it, and then he says to me, like, you know, she's really pretty, but she'd look better if her legs were a little bit fatter. <laughs> like, maybe if they looked like yours. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Our next storyteller is somebody, I, I first met him at, um, at Risk, when Risk came to Madison at the High Noon Saloon. And Risk is hosted by Kevin Allison. And uh, I first met our next storyteller at Risk, and he told a great story there, so I'm sure he's going to tell a great story here. But uh, the host of Risk is a guy named Kevin Allison, like I said, and he is actually featured on our first episode of our new podcast called Read It and Weep. Uh, Kevin sat down and read a, a, a novel that he wrote at 11 years old, and, I, and we have that first episode. It's not out yet. It'll be out in April. But again, Read It and Weep, when we, when we do that on May 12th at Mr. Roberts on Atwood Avenue, we want you to come and read your old journal entries, letters, short stories. Maybe you've written a play before you graduated high school uh, and you, you and a friend can come up and act out that play for us. Anything that you've written before you graduated high school or anything that you've written that you have 10 years separation from, that's what we want. We want you to visit our website. Just visit Madison Story Slam and use the contact form and you can email us your submission. It's going to be a ton of fun no matter what. Anyway, I've spoken too much. Our next storyteller, I met him at risk. He's a super good storyteller, and you guys should be clapping right now because it's H.R. Britton. Let's give it up for Madison Story Slam and the Wilmar Center. So I don't know if I got like a thing about the first thing that happens, but maybe I do because that's the first thing that I just mentioned right now. Um, but like, I was wondering like, if it's the first thing that happened, then there must be a reason why it was the first thing. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been the first thing. But I'll start with the last thing. Um, and I'll, st I'll start with it ending in like, maybe it's like July 1995. I've just returned from what should have been my, um, my mythic, enlightening, earth-shattering, enlightened being now trip to India. Should have been. What panned out was that I, I got very, very sick, um, went broke, had to borrow a lot of money from my brother, and had a nervous breakdown in a hospital, and came back to Madison. Uh, so that's the end of the story. <laughs> but the beginning of the story is the idea. I'm going to India. I'm, you know, I've been studying yoga for all of six months now. I learned at the Jewish co-op that eventually burned down over on Butler Street, but it's now been re refurbished somewhere else. I got, I'm like, oh my God, this, the, you know, the, the Buddhist Hindu philosophy of the non-dualism, like I can really find a way out of my, my, my restrictive Christian upbringing. Very excited. My, my brother uh, got me this green Eastern Mountain sports backpack to trek with me, you know, across, you know, from, and literally went from the top of India all the way up here by the Himalayas, all the way down Where I made it to, with this 
old blue Swedish army overcoat and this hat that my dad had given me and this New York City t-shirt. And basically the first place that I ended up was this Buddhist, you know, like after I had speed read Siddhartha on the plane. It's kind of refreshing my memory about what I was getting myself into. Um, I end up, there, I had this guy that I met at the Jewish co-op from Texas, people from the South, they got naturally, genetically the gift of telling a fantastic story. So like everything, everything Blaine Pettit ever said to me was like, oh my God, that's so fascinating. So like he spun these stories about how fantastic the world would be if I could only come to India and just drink a three rupee cup of tea and I would be in heaven, which that part is true. The first place I end up is, is the city where it first happened, where the, where the Buddha, Gautama Buddha sat under this bow tree and achieved you know, some insight into the way that reality works. I'm two weeks late apparently, uh, this is before they diagnosed me with ADHD, I, I didn't know that I was two weeks late, but, it, but I'm wandering around looking for Blaine Pettit. And now Blaine Pettit, imagine what Santa Claus would have looked like when he was like 27. <laughs> Rosy cheeked but black, you know, thinning but black hair. H, baby, how the hell are you? Well, we go to the spot, you know, the next day we go to this Buddha stupa, which is like one of the first pilgrimage sites. We get out of the cab. This guy runs up to me, Buddha statue, my brother, Buddha statue, by the Buddha. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get materialistic here. I, I'm here to see the place, the first place where they built a monastery. I go see this, it looked like a huge brick, like enormous four-story brick thimble. A monument. There's people from around the world lighting candles, sending off this vibe of intense, like peace, focus, meditative. And I'm looking at this like, I gotta go buy that Buddha statue. <laughs> Run back a little, little thing. Now, the next day, now Blaine Pettit, of course, he's got the gift of gab, he knows everybody, and he speaks Hindi. He knows the guy who runs one of, like, I don't know, they've got, it's like, it's like, in Bodh Gaya, it's like the UN for the Buddhist world. They got people from every sect and you know part of Buddhism, and they got the Great Buddhism, the Hinayana Buddha, everything, all right there. Well, Blaine Pettit knows the guy who runs one of these little temples, and the temple is in the form of this 88-foot-tall seated meditating Buddha, which, of course, you know, in my mind's eye, when I saw it for the first time, it was against the dusk of this sky you know, with the sounds of crackling fires and, and people hawking vegetables in the market, like, and the, and the sunset, and the sun's going down below them, and it's so peaceful. And the guy says to Blaine in Hindi that he's got the keys. Blaine says that to me in English, and then we get inside, he opens it up, and we're wandering up through, I mean, 88 feet is a tall situation, we're going up around this spiral staircase, and along the spiral staircase are these many, many, many tiny statues of the meditating Buddha all along the spiral staircases we're going up. And the man explains to Blaine in Hindi, and Blaine explains to me in English that it's like all these little tiny Buddhas make up the big Buddha inside the Buddha. Like everybody who participates creates the whole. I'm like, wow. That sounds pretty good. And we get further, further up, and, and then the man says to Blaine, he puts his hand on the wall, and he says this lengthy thing to Blaine in Hindi, and Blaine explains it to me in English, that where the man is putting his hand is the heart of the Buddha. I mean, like, geometrically, 
architecturally there. Like if, he, if, if this weren't a statue, this would be his heart. And I thought to myself, wow, the heart of the Buddha. That sounds really good. Resolution Therapeutic Massage is an established massage therapy clinic in downtown Madison, Wisconsin, specializing in custom massages. Their therapeutic approach is ideal for student athletes, traveling professionals, top performers, and anyone who needs their body and mind to be at peak condition. The therapists at Resolution will evaluate your muscle response and select the best technique for your tailored massage. Clients often experience relief from acute pain after one session and relief from chronic pain after three sessions. Packages for ongoing support are available at a discounted rate. And also, if you go to Resolution Therapeutic Massage and mention Madison Story Slam, you get a discount on your first visit. Thank you so much to Resolution for supporting Madison Story Slam and wanting to be a part of what we do. If you want more info about Resolution Therapeutic Massage, go to resolutionmassage.com or visit them at their clinic at 433 West Washington Avenue. Call 608-443-7048 to schedule your first appointment today. Up next on Story Slam, we have one of our favorite storytellers, Gwyneth Delop. So you guys already heard from my papa earlier, and we're actually here tonight celebrating his 64th birthday. <laughs> uh, fun fact, last year my brother and I thought it was my dad's 61st birthday because we sang When I'm 64, which we quickly had to amend to When I'm 63, <laughs> which doesn't sound the same. <laughs> But anyways, I wanted to bring my papa here tonight because he's actually the person who got me into storytelling when I was younger. I'm the youngest in my family, so before I could read, I only relied on people reading stories to me or telling stories to me. And my papa used to tell me these coyote stories. And I loved these stories, and I would listen to them over and over and over because every time they would change. So the characters were familiar, but every time there was just something different. And as I got older, I started asking my papa more stories about his life. And it was kind of the same experience because I knew my papa, but there was this whole life before I existed and it was so exciting. And there were all these big moments and I cherish them. I tell so many stories to my friends about my dad because he's just one of the most excellently bizarre people I know. A couple examples. He learned Gaelic and then hiked across Ireland with my brother. Found out this year only 8% of people in Ireland speak Gaelic. <laughs> Not a very useful thing, but he knows how to do it. He also learned to play the Irish fiddle, can't read music. So he would just sit in the living room with a fiddle and a CD until he knew the song. And 
You know, he's had this amazing life where he like moved to New York and like was a painter and then he moved to the Netherlands with my mom and I always thought when I was little, God, I want to have interesting stories too. How can I make my life more interesting so that I can have big stories to tell? So I remember some summers I would bike around our 4,000 4, person town and I would have like a legal pad and I'm like, I'll solve crime. <laughs> like. <laughs> Then my life will be exciting, which just would like turn into an entire day of me like writing down like, man walked into store, man left store, nothing happened. <laughs> so I never solved a crime, and we get to the end of high school, and I didn't feel like there were a lot of really big moments that had happened to me. And we spend five days in a cabin up north, uh, which is basically like spending five days with yourself. <laughs> because my dad would go out fishing all day and my mom would be reading and I was just there with my thoughts and I was reflecting on my life so far. And the last night of the time at the cabin, we have a campfire. And it's the kind of campfire where when I was younger, my papa would have told coyote stories. But I feel a little bit too old for that now. So I ask my papa, tell me a story about myself that I don't remember which is a strange thing to ask, but it's something that I had been doing my whole summer to all of my friends because I was collecting all of these moments that I'd forgotten about myself. And it's something you should really do because the craziest stuff comes up. People be like, hey Gwen, remember that one time you brought no rain gear to a cross country meet and ran around in a trash bag? I'm like, no. <laughs> Gwen, do you remember the time you thought there was a baby fawn in my driveway and you woke up my entire house and we turned on the lights and it was a box of fireworks? <laughs> all these things. And it made me kind of sad and kind of happy, but they were all these small moments that were just gonna be forgotten. But I asked my papa, tell me a story about myself I don't remember. And I didn't have the foresight to think, right, my dad has my entire childhood to work with here. So if you've been to the Story Slam before, you might know that uh, I was born in the Netherlands. My parents lived there for 15 years. My mom's Dutch, my dad's American. Um, and I always thought that we just all came over together. But that night, my pop explained to me that's not how it worked. He had to go first because we didn't have citizenship yet. And I was about like one at the time that he left. So I don't know if you've hung around any one-year-olds recently, but they, they don't do a lot. <laughs> we don't talk that much. We can like barely move. And there was no FaceTime or anything, so I just didn't exist for like a couple months when he was gone. And he was telling me how hard that was. And then it was finally the day. It was November. There'd been a snowstorm. It's the Midwest. It's a long day. The flight's delayed. The airport's packed and he's like sitting up against a pillar or something sleeping. And he's so exhausted and we just want to all be together again. And all of a sudden he hears, Papa, Papa. And I come toddling up and I know who he is. And he said at that moment I just sat down in that airport and I cried. And I was so touched by this story because I realized in that moment that I've been spending my whole life trying to make a big story, and I was already a part of a big story. Thank you. Thank you, Gwyneth. Our next storyteller has never told... Have you been here before? No, it's my first time. Awesome. Our... 
Did you say this is your first time in Madison? Wow. Our next storyteller has never even been to Madison before, which means she has never even been here before, which means she has never told a story here before. So please put your hands together for Toby Simmons. Hello. Um, so I'm going to tell you guys, I have one of my biggest fears. Um, it's really simple. As my biggest fear is the fear of losing weight. And how that came about came from a lot of appreciation from being bigger. Um, I suffered from a lot of trauma as a child. And I came up with the greatest solution. And my grandma would say, you came up with this solution because your brain wasn't fully developed, which was her favorite thing to say. And she'd say, your brain isn't fully developed until you're 16. And I'm at a point where I've arrived at a solution to help me with my biggest fear, and that's to go see a therapist. And that's how I'm gonna start it. I made this decision when my brain wasn't fully developed. I'm an adult now, and I've learned a lot about trauma and trauma-informed care, and that's what made me arrive at, I need to try this with a little bit more help because I've tried losing weight, and every time I've lost, one thing happened, and it was this. Oh, girl, looks like you lost some weight. What the fuck did you say to me? because that meant something to me, and it didn't mean anything good. It meant that I would be seen as weak. It meant that somebody could hurt me. It meant that I wasn't gonna be safe anymore. So I would gain the weight back, and then I would gain like maybe 25 more pounds than that, because I needed to be a little bit safer, because I didn't want anybody hurting me. Now the child in me that came up with this really grand, smart solution, heard a lot of things at the age of six. I heard about fat people, and I listened. And it was the kind of conversation you don't get involved in because it's grown folks. And in my childhood, you didn't get in grown folks' conversations. And as an only child, that's all I had to listen to was grown folks. So I listened, and I came up with the solution that fat people were ugly, and that I was going to get there because that's where I wanted to be. Because ugly meant people didn't touch you. And I was like, yes. And so if you can imagine a child having a goal of getting bigger, I got this idea of it being awesome from WWE. And simultaneously, I was really into Andre the Giant. And I was like, fuck yes, yeah, I'm body slamming everybody as soon as I get bigger. And I worked really hard at it. And by the time I got into my teenage years, I felt strong. I felt like I could flip cars down the street. No one was touching me anymore. And I felt empowered because I achieved my goal. I was officially ugly. And I was officially safe. And I felt great. At the best time of my life in high school, because nobody bothered me. It was awesome. 
As I've aged, I've gotten bigger, and I've tried to lose weight because at some point I thought, God, now I kind of want to be cute. I, I want someone to like me. So I've worked really hard at achieving ugly, and I never really paid attention to what people thought was cute, but I assumed that skinny meant cute, attractive, beautiful. And so I was like, well, shit, I better start working on that. And then someone would say, and usually it was my mom, have you lost some weight, baby? You're looking good. And I'd say, no, and walk away. <laughs> and that continued to happen publicly with strangers, family, friends. And that's why I need therapy. Because if you say it to me, I'm going to regress. And I'm at a point where I don't know if I can get any bigger. And I've come to a point where I'm grown. And I realized that getting bigger didn't make me any safer. As those years went by, I still got hurt from 6 to 13. And it didn't matter how big I got. But in my child's underdeveloped brain, I just knew I had to get bigger. And Andre the Giant was my goal. <laughs> so I, I didn't achieve that. Um, but I did achieve the weight. I didn't get taller, I didn't get stronger, but in my mind, in my psyche, it meant something to me to be a bigger person. And so now, I wanna lose weight, because I got shit to do. You know, I need to be on top of a man, writing that thing, and I need to, I want to be tossed in the air and then like, you know, fly around like I've seen in movies and be like, oh my God, he was so strong. Because <laughs> I need to feel those things. I want to hike. I want to go to an amusement park and have the bar go down so it you know, keeps me in that motherfucking ride. So I can go up and down the roller coaster because I love amusement parks. And I still want to do that. And I realize there's so many positive things now about being smaller being healthier so my body can do the things my mind wants to do. And so I need to meet in the middle. So when I see my therapist, that I don't know who it is yet, just, I don't know, I just know that I need to try something different. Um, my therapist is gonna have to do a lot of work because it's really hard to keep the public from commenting on who you are, what you are, and what is beautiful. I know that today I'm like 436 pounds of being touched and that tomorrow I might be a pound less because I walked a little bit today. You guys got quite a few things to do. There's lots of water out here, lots of future greenery. I see the potential. <laughs> And I see that potential and reflection of myself because I feel so bare branched, so exposed and naked all the time. Because you will notice when I enter a room and you may ask yourself, why the fuck is she so fat? What did she do? And I tried to protect myself. That's what I did for a really long time. I didn't know the right way to do it because I was a child and I don't exactly have the tools to turn it back. But I know it's gonna take one step at a time, and I know that 
I'm gonna have to face my fears. And I feel bad for the therapist because they're probably gonna go gray. <laughs> it's probably gonna be years. But I will tell you, I'm really glad to be in Madison. If I catch your eye anytime in the next year performing here again, if, if it's still here somewhere else, please just say, bitch, you look fat as hell. <laughs> <Okay>? <laughs> What we get to do here is so cool. That took guts. Yeah. I say it all the time that, um, you know, stories here tend to be really funny, right? But every now and then, somebody comes up and just like rips their chest open, rips their rib cage open, and lets you see their heart. Our next storyteller is somebody else who has never been here before and has never told a story before. Please put your hands together for Kai Brito. To all the adults in the room, why is it that the first thing you ask when you meet a little kid is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because when I was little, I didn't know the answer to that question. I remember sitting in class and <laughs> having the teacher come around and ask, and people had their prepared answers. You know, Eric would say, oh, I want to be a fireman. You know, Alex would want to be a writer, and like Hannah would want to be a teacher. <clears throat> And me, but I didn't really have an answer. I just kind of sat there and stood in silence, awkwardly. So the next time, I thought, oh, I'm going to have an answer prepared, and it's going to be a good one. It's going to be better. It's going to blow all their answers out the water. So what I had prepared was, go ahead, ask me. Ask me what I was going to be. I wanted to go into space. <laughs> right, so then they asked, oh, so you want to be an astronaut? No, 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 I don't, I don't want to be an astronaut. I want to be a space cowboy. <laughs> right, but that's not practical. I was like, oh, no, 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 like, you know, it is. How would you make money? I was like, oh, well, that's easy. I'd take it, stick them up, and then go. Because it's space, you, you, you don't move fast. <laughs> Right, so, you know, we, we've gotten really good at asking little kids these questions. We systematically, um, you know, round them up in a room into what we call first grade and ask them that question. So now we've gotten to the point where, oh, okay, that, they were right. That wasn't the right answer. So I thought I'd come up with something better, you know. I thought that I would become the next Jackie Chan. I would become the next generation Bruce Lee. I'd be doing all my own stunts. I'd be stopping all the big crime in China, just like he did, I'd be doing it all. So I'd be dodging punches, dodging kicks, dodging women, because, well, I'm gay, but... <laughs> no, 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 uh, that, that didn't work out either. So, uh, yeah, actually, it, but that trend, that tendency did follow me into college, where 
What's the first question you get asked when you meet a new person in college? Oh, yeah, okay, so you're not too old to remember. <laughs> okay, yeah, what's your major? So, again, I had this, like, problem where I had to, like, put myself and decide, you know, what's the next step you're going to take? So, this time I thought I'd be even more prepared, and I'd look through the entire college directory and think to myself, okay, what, do, what would I hate to do? What do, uh, would I be okay with doing? What would I love to do? What would I want to do for money? Well, <laughs> eventually, through the list, I saw individual major, and I knew there were a lot of options there. I, I had an imagination, and I would keep my career's options open. So the next time a person would come up and ask me that question, I knew what I wanted to do. They would go and ask me, Exactly. So now I'd say, oh, well, I'm going to be an individual major. I'm going to major in con artistry. <laughs> right. But no, but I actually had it all planned out. You know, I would take computer science classes for hacking. I would take art history so I'd know the most expensive and most famous paintings to steal and get that notoriety. And then I would take acting so I would know how to, you know, con artist people. That's well, not a very reputable career, but, you know, eventually, five years and five majors later, I did decide on something. Uh, I was an environmental science major, and uh, no, now I'm out of college and still have that question, and I've decided to myself, you know, there, there is that question that still is like, what, not what do you want to be, not what is your major, but now what is it you do do? And uh, me, now I just, I'm in Madison, I'm a journalist, and... I tell stories just like tonight here. <laughs> so thank you for this opportunity to share. Thank you, Kai. Our last and final storyteller tonight has never been here before, but she saw fit to seek me out and say, I've got a damn good story. You're right. You did say, I'm not sure I want to do this. And then I said, ah, oh, you do. Come on, come on, come on. Our next storyteller, I just know is going to be fantastic. She's never told a story here before, but I know it's going to be great. So please put your hands together for Meg McCullough. Well, thank you. I can't uh, lie and say that I'm unhappy that people left because there's fewer of you and I'm a little nervous here. So in 1988, um, I got married, and I was pregnant at the time. So nowadays, that's really not too big a deal, but back in 1988, it was a little bit bigger of a deal. But that's not the big thing that I want to tell you about. So my now husband, then boyfriend, um, was living in the Chicago area, and I was living in Atlanta. And we were having this long-distance relationship, flying back and forth. And during that time, um, we ended up uh, finding out that I was pregnant. And so we decided to get married. So I started out my pregnancy care in Chicago and with one doc and then moved, I'm sorry, in Atlanta, and then moved up to Chicago to be with my husband, then boyfriend, and uh, before we got married. 
And the uh, practice that I went to, I was seeing a multitude of docs. And so since there was a very short time, I saw a different person every time I went in. And I kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And they said, well, are you sure of the date for this? Are you sure of the age for this baby? And I said, well, yeah, you know, we had a long distance relationship. I can tell you exactly the date. <laughs> but the doctors didn't believe me. And so they wanted to do ultrasounds and all these other things to find out the dating. And they did their ultrasounds, and after that, they said, well, no, you can't be right. And I said, I I'm telling you, these are the dates. And they said, no, 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 this, it's got to be a different date. So we're going along with this pregnancy, and I'm seeing a different person each time. And each one of them kind of mentions that, wow, you're getting a little large. And as time went on, I even had people coming up to me and saying, well, are you having twins? I mean, I, I was getting really large. And uh, so the doctors, when they did the ultrasound, said, well, yeah, you're going to have a large baby, and it's probably going to be about eight or nine pounds. Now, I'm five foot one. I'm wearing heels today. But, and at that time, when I graduated high school, I was like a size three. I wasn't quite that small at the time. Um, but I was a little person, and I had, you know, what they thought was an eight or nine pound baby inside me. So I was huge. And, but that's still not the big thing that I want to tell you about. And so time comes, and we're going to have this, this baby, and they decide to induce because I'm not going into labor. And they induce me, and, and I would go into um, that induced labor, which is much harder than, you know, the beginning stages. It's like, slam, you're in the end stages of labor. And so for 10 hours, I'm in that intense labor. And finally, after 10 hours of that intense labor, and the nurse keeps telling me nothing's happening, nothing's going on down there, you know. My husband finally goes and says to the doctor, you need to come and you need to get things going, whatever that is, but this is just not right. So they decide to do a C-section. And they cut an eight or nine pound baby hole. And my husband's over there watching things going on because he's kind of into that stuff. And, um, and I'm laying strapped on the table. And he's giving me details, some of which I got later on. But he said they, the doctor reached in to give this baby and he can't get the baby out of this eight or nine pound hole. I mean, he's struggling and pulling. And uh, we've come to find out that the reason is because this wasn't an eight or nine pound baby. This was an 11 pound, two ounce baby. But that's still not the big thing that I want to tell you about. <laughs> so, <laughs> so just even in the hospital, the, my husband ordered roses for me one for each pound that the baby was. And so the florist delivers them himself because he wanted to meet the lady who had the 11 pound baby. <laughs> and when the nurse brought my baby to me in the hospital, my baby was naked, didn't have a shirt on or anything. And she said, well, here's your little hospital t-shirt, but it normally fits babies that are like a three month or less size. And we're looking in the basement to see if we can find a t-shirt big enough to fit your baby, <laughs> which they eventually did. And so that young man is now an IT uh, tech in Stevens Point. Um, he is 30 years old, and that's my oldest son. But he was not the biggest thing that I wanted to tell you about, because 16 months later, 
I had 14 pounds worth of twins. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Meg. That was such an abrupt stop. I didn't expect it. So, uh, I run this uh, with just me and Ashley, and sometimes I make mistakes. Can you forgive mistakes, guys? No, I hear a couple of no's out there. So I just announced that Meg was our last storyteller of the night, and then as I went to go take her picture on stage, somebody came up to me and said, you forgot me. It happens. So, will you allow one more storyteller for the night? I kind of figured because I feel like we're having a really great night tonight, yeah. right? Is your last name Koppel? Keppel? Keppel? Okay, cool. Our final story of tonight is being told by someone who's never been here before. And so that means she's never told a story here before. But please give a amazing round of applause for Margaret Keppel! I just want to say thanks for sticking around. It's really sweet. I, the whole time I was like, oh, my next, my next. Um, all right, so, so Jared and I, we go way back, all right? Uh, we went to elementary school together. He's actually a year older than me, um, but I won't hold that against him, you know. Um, we went to elementary school together. We went to middle school together. Uh, we went to high school together. And we were in band. I was total band nerd say what you will, saxophone player, um, and he played percussion, and he had ADHD, <laughs> and he was the most, if you know any percussionists, um, he was the most distracted person to ever, like, he was always so distracted. He's the kind of person that would skip school, like, in the middle of the day, he would just leave, and, like, nobody, <laughs> nobody noticed or really, like, cared, they were like, oh, Jared's gone. <laughs> and that was it. Nobody you know, went after him. But he'd skip school to go to the library, and he would read books. He would read about astrophysics, and he would read about you know, molecular biology and advanced calculus and things like that. But he just he hated school. Couldn't do school. Just the, the structure of it just drove him absolutely insane. He couldn't handle it. Um, but he was just a ball of energy. He was very, if you were around him, it was like warming your hands on a fire, kind of. You're like, oh my God, this guy's like, wow. Um, so when I was a junior, we had this pep band game, because, you know, pep band, extra cool kids, right? Um, so he walked me out to my car, and I was dating one of his friends, and I was like getting ready to leave, and he gets in the passenger side, and he just sits there and looks at me, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, what am I supposed to think? And he looks at me, and I look at him, and I'm like, oh, you're cute. Knowing you forever, you're kind of a cute guy, whatever. And he just looks at me, he's like, no, you know, I respect you way too much. And he gets out of the car, goes home. And I was like, shit, <laughs> wow, okay. You know, I was dating his friend, but you're 15, whatever, you're dumb. So the years go on, um, and I was, 
I dated another friend from that group and another friend from that group. And teenage me actually had a life. It's been a long time since I had a life. Um, but for whatever reason, the advent, for those of you out there, I'm 25, or kind of around my age, there was that transition period between instant messenger and like Facebook chat. If y'all remember that, I was an MSN Messenger girl. I don't know if y'all had AIM, if anybody had AIM out there, but MSN Messenger was, was my shtick. So it was the transformation between MSN and Facebook chat. I'm getting some nods. Okay, good. We're in, the, we're in a good place. Um, so for whatever reason, um, he graduated high school, you know, terrible grades, just, just absolutely terrible because he'd skip all the time. He tried to go to community college, couldn't do it. He wanted to be a chem major, couldn't do it. He wanted to be a bio major, couldn't do it. Math major, couldn't do it. He couldn't sit in class. He just couldn't do it. So he got his pilot's license for small planes, if anybody out there has their pilot's license. Um, but he got, and he got his own plane. And he kept it at the local airport because that was something that he could wrap his mind around. Flying, freedom. It's like, no one's gonna keep me down in this plane. He got the bright idea, he started working for his parents because he needed money. But he got the bright idea to get on a bicycle and bike from Wisconsin to Montana. He slept on the side of the road with a rucksack. He never stayed anywhere, not even a hostel. He never camped anywhere. He literally slept on the side of the road and just went to Montana. And he flew back. Everyone's like, Jared, why did you do that? I don't know. And that's it. You didn't get anything else from him. I don't know. Because, okie dokie. So then he would get into his plane, he flew to Alaska, and he climbed Mount McKinley. Jared, why did you, why did you do Did You're into rock climbing? You know, you hadn't seen him in six months, and all of a sudden he's, like, climbing a mountain. And he's like, I don't know. All right, you know, great, good, good, good stuff. Um, but he, he, he was depressed. And part of me thinks that he did all this crazy shit because he just didn't really care. You know, I don't know, was maybe his, it doesn't matter. I want to feel something at all. So I'm going to do these outrageous things that are completely outside the realm of societal structure of any kind because, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, I'm, I'm, a mus I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I still do a lot of art, I'm a metal artist and things like that, but writing, that's actually how I found this event, was I was looking for more of a poetry slam type of thing Writing is extremely personal to me, and it's really hard for me to share writing with anybody. Um, but Jared was the one that I did share writing with. So we would write back and forth to each other. Because I, I went to Northwestern, I was, I was in Chicago, um, he was in Watertown where I'm from, and we would send stories back and forth. And I kind of have like a collection of them all like back and forth, and he'd be like, does this sound, does this sound stupid? Like tell me, like for real. Does this and it was like a campfire scene where he was like breaking up with a girl or she was breaking up with him and it was, it was beautiful. He's like, this sentence though, does this, does this sound dumb? <laughs> no, <laughs> it sounds great. Um, so we'd write back and forth. And one time he called me in the middle of the night and he was like, hey, I'm driving this trailer down to Chicago with all this stuff on it. Can I stop by? I was like, no, <laughs> it's the middle of the night. And he's like, you're right, I wouldn't be able to park the trailer and like, I don't have time to stop anyway, but I'm thinking of you, you know? And I'm like, okay, cool man. What am I gonna say to that? Um, and we would talk a lot on Facebook Messenger, like I said. And one time he was like, uh, I'm gonna go to Europe. 
for six months. Why? I don't know. Who are you going with? A girl I met at a salsa club in Madison. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, she's cool, you know, she's a traveler. Oh, okay. Calls me up. Hey, tell me how to say some things in French, just some things that I'd need to know, you know? And I'm like, okay, sure. So we had a conversation for about an hour about that. Goes to Europe, comes back. Goes to EMT school. Comes an EMT. Starts volunteering for a fire station on Tuesday nights. And there was this one night, he was like, texted me, my parents are out of town for their anniversary, come over right now. And man, I slammed on that brake and I spun around on that country road and I went straight over there. He had UV blue, as young people are wont to have, and I brought some Sprite, as young people are wont to bring. And we sat in his bed and watched How I Met Your Mother for eight hours straight. <laughs> and I don't know if any of y'all seen How I Met Your Mother, fans, some fans. There's the episode where Barney gets the yips and he has to go meet the first woman he ever slept with. Does anyone remember her name? No. Rhonda Manmaker. And Rhonda Manmaker's like 65 in the episode. He's like, Rhonda. So the yips go away, whatever. But he thought it was real funny to call me Margaret Manmaker virgin surgeon, <laughs> which was, there's very little credulity to that, but I was like, all right, you're a funny guy, I'll let you, I'll let you call me that. Um, so after one evening of flagrante delecto, about 3.30 in the morning, a bunch of idiot teenagers fumbling around, I left at 5 in the morning, we never spoke of it again, but it was just like this moment we had. So I go home from school, December 2013 and I'm getting my hair cut. My parents still had dial-up, they still have dial-up to this day. Just throwing that out there, it had to be said. So I don't have Facebook when I go home. I don't have anything. I don't know what's going on. I didn't have a smartphone until like two years ago. I had no idea what things were happening. So I'm going at my friend's house, who's a stylist, and I'm sitting there and she's cutting my hair, trimming it, you know, real nice, and she's like, it's about the 5th, I think, of July, and she's like, yeah, so did you hear about Jared? I guess really fucked up, isn't it? And I was like, no, what's happening? She's like, he's missing. And I said, what? And she's like, oh, it's all over Facebook. Everybody's looking. He, he went missing. I'm like, Ex no, I don't, I don't have the internet, you know? And it was so frustrating. I grew up this way. I was so disconnected. My parents are Luddites. They hate technology. And I was like, I don't even understand like, what was happening. Like, like rewind. What happened? Well, he was climbing Mount Aconcagua in Argentina, which is the highest mountain in the Western Hemisphere, with a guy he met on a rock climbing site or whatever. And all I can think of is the guy who met up with me at Summerfest and said, hey, Margaret, I'm going to go get something greasy and something yeasty, and came back with a bucket of chicken wings and like two beers and was carrying all of them at the same time. I thought of that guy. And he's missing. And they're like, well, he activated his distress beacon on New Year's Eve. And it was the 5th. And I hadn't heard tied no hair. And I'm like, oh my, oh my god. Like, and I knew. We all knew at that point. It was, it was too far. Um, they did find them a few days later. They did reach the top. I always make sure to make that very, very clear. They reached the top. 
but they, kept, they came down a little too early in the day and the sun was shining on the snow and it was very slippery. I don't know a lot about rock climbing, but at that time in the day, you're supposed to wait until later when the snow is a little bit more solid. Um, they fell into a crevasse. I still don't know how. I hope it was quick. But his death was big, but there's a little bit more. I was at his funeral. Two friends of his did the eulogy. His parents were very Catholic. He was very not Catholic. We're all sitting in this Catholic church with this. And it was the priest's first day, okay? And all of our friends are sitting here like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, this is ridiculous. So it's the priest's first day. He's going on and on and on about how he, like, found the Lord. And we're all sitting here like, Jared would have left. He would have, he would have left 15 minutes ago to go to the library and read about something else. So... My friends go up to do the eulogy, and it was two of them. And it was almost like a yik yik kind of comedy act. It was just ridiculous. But the very first thing that came out of my friend's mouth was, Jared was a womanizer. <laughs> we're in a Catholic church, by the way, and we're like crying and then laughing and then crying and then laughing. It was horrible. So they were doing this whole shtick, and his parents were just like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? And we're all like, oh my God, Jared would have loved this. This would have been just, he would have just, it was amazing. So at the very end, one of the guys who did the eulogy came up to me, and it was solemn, you know, I was sitting with his mom, the mom was crying and everything, and he hugs me, and he whispers into my ear, what's it like having slept with a dead guy? And I stepped back, to slap him so bad, but I'm like, respect, it's a funeral, even though Jared would have probably enjoyed it if I slapped him. But I was like, oh, it's just a little weird. Yeah, mm-hmm, Midwestern, nice. I'm going to turn around and leave before I punch you out in this church. So that was, um, New Year's is not the same anymore. I don't go out, and I never go out. Um, but the I went and took flowers to his grave about a week ago, because I'm a wedding DJ. They were giving away bouquets after the show was over. I put him on his grave, and I walk up to there, and there's a little tiny bottle of Fireball whiskey on his tombstone. And I just laughed. I was like, this is perfect. So as many people earlier said, the big things, yeah, they're traumatic. They're awful. I haven't been the same since. But just seeing that little bottle of fireball in his grave, that was the biggest thing. Somebody knew him so well, and it was just so silly that they took this little bottle and put it on his grave like I was thinking of you, buddy. It's fireball. It's for college kids. You know? It's swill. <laughs> but he liked it, and it was funny. And that's what it is. And that's what's big. Like it was said before, it's the little things that are big. And we can keep someone alive as long as we keep talking about them. And that's why I wanted to share this with you. Thank you. Hey, that's going to do it. For us today on this episode of Madison Story Slam, if you enjoyed this, then you are going to want to come out this Saturday, April 21st, to the Wilmar Center. 
for our next Story Slam event. The theme is Child's Play, so come here and tell some great stories about the things that you did as children. Uh, as always, we will have our merch there, our t-shirts, hoodies, CDs, buttons, you name it, we've got it, except that's not actually true. We only have the things that I just listed. If you're looking for more cool storytelling type events, well, good news. On May 12th, we're starting our second event called Read It and Weep. That's going to be on Atwood at Mr. Roberts. That's 2116 Atwood Avenue. And we are going to be telling, nah, not telling stories quite so much, but we're going to be sharing our old journal entries, old letters, old short stories, plays, songs, anything you wrote before you graduated high school, or anything you've written that you have at least 10 years separation from. We want you to come share with us now who you were then. It's going to be a blast. And uh, I personally, I cannot wait. Again, that is May 12th at Mr. Roberts. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, I love you.